0: One of the things that has struck me about the culture in which we live in is the reality that our culture does not believe in the wrath of God, and the reality of God's <coughs> impending judgment upon the world, and the reality of His wrath against sin. If you take a survey of the average person, not only say on the street corner, but even in evangelical churches and you ask them about God's wrath, they will at best give you a muddled reply in terms of how they would describe that. It's as if Jesus' words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, make utterly no sense in a culture that primarily thinks of God as love. This is why the words in Matthew 3 are so crucial for us to understand, even as we preach the gospel to a culture in which these words are almost unintelligible. If you are taking notes this morning, the main point from Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12, is that true repentance is the only escape from divine judgment. True repentance is the only escape from divine judgment. And I want to unpack this main point in two parts. First, I want to look at the reality from this text that all of us and every single person who has ever lived or will live will face divine judgment. And then secondly, I want to look at the nature of true repentance. And I want you to see from this text that for John and indeed for Jesus, that these two things are inextricably tied together. That because inescapable divine judgment has come to all people, we must respond appropriately. And this text is clear that the appropriate response is repentance. True repentance is the only escape. And so we need to not only understand um, what that word means, but I hope through our consideration this morning that you'll be spurred on to not just be able to articulate what repentance is, but to examine your own heart and say, have I repented and is true repentance the ongoing heartbeat of my Christian life? I want you to see repentance not as a sour medicine that you're forced to take just once, but it is a sweet fruit that you desire to eat of your entire life. As Martin Luther famously said in his 95 theses, that all of life is repentance. And so this is both a one-time call that faith And especially repentance with faith is a crucial element of true conversion. But it's also, repentance is also an ongoing thing that we regularly do throughout the Christian life. So first, we will all face inescapable divine judgment. And I want to show you this from the text by looking at John, looking at John the Baptist as a prophet who proclaims and prepares people for divine judgment. He proclaims and he prepares all people for divine judgment. And I want you to notice three things from this text about John the Baptist's ministry. First, we're going to look at who he is, then we're going to look at what he proclaims and then particularly and indeed most importantly who he proclaims it to and the who tells us something about the nature of repentance. So who is John the Baptist? Who is John the Baptist? Well simply put John the Baptist is the continuation and the culmination of the Old Testament prophets. Where do I see that? Uh, Where do I see the continuation and the culmination of the Old Testament prophets? I get it from the fact that he quotes in reference to himself Isaiah 40 verse 3 when he speaks of the one crying in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. Now, if you ask the question, well, how is that a reference to himself? How is his echoing of Isaiah 40, verse 3? An echoing and a reference to himself. Well, it's from verse 1. Because it is John who is in the wilderness, who is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He is saying, I am the continuation... Of the Old Testament prophets who were prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. And so, after 400 years of silence, finally, one proclaiming in the wilderness. The continuity is undeniable. Uh, John the Baptist actually literally picks off w- picks up where the last words of the last book of the Old Testament leave off. Um, turn with me, for example, to Malachi chapter four, and let's just look at the parallels between Malachi chapter four, particularly verses four through six, and Luke chapter one verse 17, the first words of the New Testament that the angel spoke to John the Baptist's father as a description of John the Baptist. Malachi chapter 4. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now just keep that verse in mind and turn to Luke 1, and we'll look at verse 2. 17, and see if you see in these first words about John the Baptist, a very picking up of right where the Old Testament left off. Get verse 17 with me. And he shall go before him, this is the angel speaking, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias or Elijah. And then here's an, a, a, an a, Almost an exact quote from Malachi 4. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to wisdom, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. No more silence. God is preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. So that's the first thing I want you to notice John the Baptist is a prophet. Notice, secondly, what he proclaims. And I want you to notice that there are three parallel things that he proclaims. First, he proclaims the coming of the Lord. But along with that, he also proclaims two other things, the coming of the kingdom and the coming with that of divine judgment. So, with the Lord coming comes the kingdom, and with that, also divine judgment. Where do I get these three parallels from? Well, if you look at verses 2, 3, and 11, and 12, those three things are the things that emerge. Um, Verses 1 and 2 says, "...in those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness in Judea, and saying, Repent, Ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there it is. What has come? The kingdom has come. Mm -hmm. Then notice, secondly, in verse 3, the coming of the Messiah. It says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Elijah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming. Make his paths straight. So the coming of the Messiah ushers in the coming of the kingdom. And then notice finally, verses 11 and 12, where he says, "...I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire." whose fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So when, when the, the Lord comes and the kingdom comes, John the Baptist is clear, judgment also comes. And he says God's judgment is going to be like a farmer gathering grain and that there's going to be grain mixed with chaff and there's going to be a fan or as other versions translate it, there's going to be a winnowing fork and there's going to be a sifting. Um, You know the image, Um, the farmer will take the winnowing fork, he'll throw it up into the air. And the grain that has, wheat, or has, has weight will fall to the ground. But as Psalm 1 says, the wicked, those who are not going to be gathered in, are like the chaff that the wind blows away. There's going to be a separating of the grain and the chaff. And it's clear. The farmer is God who comes in judgment The winnowing fork and fire are the tools of judgment and the wheat and the grain are the two different groups of people in all of humanity. The grain, of course, is those who are rescued from judgment. Those who, as the text is going to go on to say, and we'll look at this in more detail, repent, bear fruit and ultimately follow Jesus Christ, whereas the chaff are thrown into the unquenchable fire. That is, those who do not repent, do not bear fruit, who reject Christ. If you ask the question, well, when is this? Well, the text is clear. This is both later. It's a future event. But it's not just later. It's Now, there is future language here to describe God's coming judgment and ultimately his judging of the world at the end of age. And yet, John is clear that this is imminent. This is close. He actually says the time is at hand. There's an urgency. There's an urgency for John. To repent and believe. And of course, John the Baptist's warning, his message, his proclamation. It is our proclamation as well to a world, as we began by saying, that knows nothing of the reality of divine judgment. Brothers and sisters, we are called to urgently warn That the Lord has come and he does come with judgment. And that this proclamation is not merely an attestation to something that is possible or a form of acting, but rather is an attestation to reality. I've heard one person describe it like this. Imagine two different scenes. Imagine first a scene in which uh, you walk up and there is, a, there is a building and it's on fire. And there is a woman and she's holding a baby. And she's saying, my baby, my baby, my baby. And there's, there's flames everywhere. And you see the fire trucks roll in and you see the hose come out. And there's a sense of urgency. And then all of a sudden you step back and you notice, oh, the cameras are rolling. The cameras are rolling. There's an acting that's taking place. But then imagine stepping into the very same scene as you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a woman and you see the flames and you see my baby, my baby, my baby. And the fire trucks come in and the water comes out. And you look around, but there's no cameras. There's no cameras. There's no acting. It's consistent with reality. The the firemen are acting in a way that's consistent with reality. The woman is acting in a way that's consistent with reality. And it's not acting, it's reality. Friends, that's the, the urgency by which we are called to preach the gospel, and attest to the Word of God. That the Bible is filled with glories and horrors and not much else. And that we are called to speak these things as if they are true because they really are. There really are two groups of people. There really is a coming judgment. And the command is to repent and to follow Christ to be rescued from that judgment. Let us heed these words as we think about our neighbors, as we think about the proclamation of the gospel in our churches, as we look around at a world that has rejected God. So thus far we've looked at who John the Baptist is. We've looked at what he proclaims. I want now to look at who he proclaims it to. And we're going to look specifically at the who, because the who tells us something about the nature of true repentance. All people, but especially and unexpectedly from this text, the Jews and the outward religious leaders will experience divine judgment. That's the... That's the surprise of this text. Simply put, Jesus' coming did not fulfill expectations. When the Jews in the Old Testament, or when the Jews at the time of Jesus were expecting the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the Messiah, they were anticipating the judgment and destruction of their enemies that the Messiah would come and he would come as a divine warrior and he would pour out his wrath and judgment on these leaders, particularly the Romans and the other foreign leaders who were oppressing them. And instead of that, John says that judgment is going to come, but this judgment is not going to exclude the Jews, but it actually is going to include the Jews and even especially the religious leaders. Notice the language of the judgment on the Jews in verses 9 and 10. It's undeniable. He says, "...and think not to say within yourselves," he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, "...we have Abraham as our father." For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto who? Unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So there's a tree, the Jewish generation, the seed of Abraham. There's an axe. Judgment, and we've already looked at that, but there's an axe. Judgment, which he says has already been laid to the root of these fruitless trees, and the result is a judgment by fire. Now, I want you to think carefully with me this morning. Who specifically John targets? Who specifically ends up in the crosshairs in these verses? Well, it's simple. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come and they approach John as he's baptizing. And we can see that they're at the very least interested in what's going on at the Jordan River with John. And rather than welcoming them, encouraging them, embracing them, Rather than responding in that way, it's wonderful that you've come. Um, you must be interested and seeker-sensitive. He rebukes them. He calls them a brood of vipers. He says, who warned you to, f- to flee from the wrath of God? Now, it's, it should be, as you think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's utterly surprising, actually, that they have come together to see John. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have virtually nothing in common. Uh, The Pharisees, very non-professional. They rejected a luxurious lifestyle. Uh, They were very much zealous for the oral traditions and specific interpretations of the law. And they were popular among the people. The Sadducees, in some ways, very much the opposite While the Pharisees loved tradition, the Sadducees were very much keen to preserve a biblical authority. They were wealthy. They were part of the governing Jewish elite class, and they often were found cooperating with the Romans. And they were, no surprises here, largely unpopular with the people. And so you have to ask as you come to this text... Given these, these in some ways, contrasting groups, what are they doing there together? What are they doing there together? And notice they're presented as a group by Matthew. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they come. Now, I want you to just hit pause on that question and answering that question. What are they doing there together and why are they considered together together? As we turn now to the nature of true repentance, and we're going to pick up that question in just a moment. The first command of both John the Baptist and Jesus in Matthew's gospel, the very first command is repent. We see that in Matthew 3, verse 2, and then in Matthew 4, verse 17. But what exactly, let's just press in here, what exactly is repentance? And in the second part, I want us to look at six things about the nature of repentance. And as we go through these, I don't want you to just get a clearer sense of what repentance is and that you could more easily and clearly define it. I want you to ask the question as we go through each of these, is this something that I see as characteristic of my life. First, true repentance is an internal transformation. And here we're going to pick up with answering the question, why is it that John the Baptist specifically targets the Pharisees and Sadducees? The answer is because the nature of repentance is an internal transformation. You see, John the Baptist is opposed to the Pharisees and Sadducees, not because they have been outwardly and overtly evil and disobedient, but because they presume that their external religiosity is sufficient for a right relationship with God. That as they present themselves to God, they hide behind... You could say their ancestral pedigree and the fig leaves of their perfectionistic lifestyles. Simply put, for all their disagreements and and differences, they are lock in step in their belief in a divine meritocracy that salvation is based on the external tallying of good works, and they believe that they are automatically accepted by God because they're Jews, and that each person has a divine bank account in which their good works are being stored up for their own salvation. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, attended a Roman Catholic school through fifth grade, um, Sunday Mass every Sunday. And that's exactly how I thought. If you asked a 12-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old Greg Salazar, how is it that someone comes into eternal life? Or how do you know when, you're, when, you're die, when you die, you're going to go to heaven? And I would have said, well, if your if good works outweigh your bad works, and you've been a generally good person as long as you didn't do anything horribly evil... And even if you did, as long as you apologized and, and, uh, and said sorry uh, to God and to others, uh, that would be sufficient. And yet, as I heard the, the good news of the gospel, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I came to see there is no such thing as a divine meritocracy where I am storing up good works, but rather... Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that I was called to live but did not live. And he died the substitutionary death in my place. And through believing in that reality and having my faith rest on the one object of faith, Jesus Christ, that salvation could come. This is the very thing that John says. He says, Being physically born of Abraham does not equal spiritual birth. Outward, even meticulous religiosity is not a sign of true spiritual life. John actually sizes up them and really articulates the spiritual state of the Pharisees and Sadducees, saying that they have a heart of stone. Notice that in verse 9. It says, don't, don't say that we have Abraham as our father. For God is able of these stones, of these stones, to raise up children unto Abraham. These are hard hearts Obadiah grew, says the meat that Jacob provided for his father Isaac. Here he's speaking of the need for the righteousness of Christ. The meat that Jacob provided for his father Isaac was good and pleasing to him. Yet he got not the blessing by this, but by being found in his elder brother's garment. He smelled the smell of the garment and blessed him. So, though the precious graces and holy duties and holy lives of believers and holy men are well-pleasing to God, yet it is not for these that God doth bless them with forgiveness of sins, but because they are in their elder brother's garment in the righteousness of Christ put upon them. And that's the reality from beginning to end of the Christian life. Secondly, true repentance is a definitive turning away from sin and turning to Christ. In Scripture, repentance means to undergo a change of mind. But this isn't merely a matter of changing of minor opinion, but it is a radical turning Away from sin and turning unto Christ. So first is a turning away from sin. One of my favorite quotes um, by William Gurnell, uh, a Puritan divine in the 17th century, is his quote in describing what true repentance looks like, and he and he reckons it to being like turning or like leaving a house. And uh, not just leaving like you're going to work for a day, but actually leaving the house for good. He says, to forsake sin is to leave it, that is the house, without any thought reserved of returning to it again. Every time a man takes a journey from home about his business, we do not say he has forsaken his house because he meant when he went out to come back again. No, but when we see a man leave his house, carry all his stuff away with him, lock up his doors and take up his abode in another, never to dwell there anymore, here is a man who hath indeed forsaken his house. Friends, many of us cling to the sin that is killing us. God has called us to leave that house, and to burn all the bridges on the way back. But it's not just a turning from sin. Repentance is a turning to Christ. In the Old Testament, repent was a call of Israel to return to faithfulness in the covenant. That repentance is ultimately for the purpose of restoration. And we see even John the Baptist use of this word repent in Luke 1, verse 16, when he's described as one who will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So it's not just turning away, it's turning to. Third, true repentance continu- continually produces the fruit of true godly remorse. Notice John's words in verse 8. John's words in verse 8. Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, or literally bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you ask the question, how is it in Matthew? Uh, 5 verse 20, Jesus is going to say, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. How is that possible? Well, because our righteousness is marked by a true godly repentance rather than a worldly sorrow. When John tells the Pharisees to repent, he is commanding them to have a true repentance for having offended God. And that real godly remorse is the fruit of this repentance. There's a difference, isn't there, in Scripture between worldly sorrow and godly repentance. We know that worldly sorrow may contain self-punishment, sadness, even depression. But its main source is the fear of punishment and loss of blessing. You can see this as we look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verses eight through eleven. Listen to how Heath Lambert defines this. He really he probes down into the nature of the difference between uh, godly repentance and worldly sorrow. He says all sorrow is not created equal. People experiencing worldly sorrow are distressed because they are losing or fear losing. The things the world has to offer. offer. The loss could be a reputation, job, money, family, sexual fulfillment, anything that brings security, comfort, or pleasure. All the tears and all the pain are actually about the loss of your stuff. We see examples of this throughout the Bible. We see it in the example of Esau, who was sorry not because he had sinned, but because he had lost his birthright. We see it, for example, with Judas as well. Now, Judas, all of that remorse was not a godly repentance. was a worldly sorrow. Godly repentance has a deep remorse for having offended God. Against you and you only have I sinned. Lambert says, Godly sorrow is pained over the break in the relationship with God and that God has been grieved and offended. It doesn't fear that people will find out about your sin, rather that God, the only person who ultimately matters, always knew. And of course, this is um, in conversion, a necessary part of conversion, but yet repentance is something that is continual. True repentance, fourth, is initiated by God's Gracious call to his enemies. Friends, John the Baptist's command to repent is not a bitter command, but it is a loving command. That even though the Pharisees and Sadducees, like all humanity, are enemies, he graciously beckons them to repent. Though they are infected with the poison, he offers them the remedy. And we know that some Pharisees did repent. Uh, we know, for example, that Nicodemus and Paul, a people who originally were enemies of God, did in turn repent. God has an unbreakable covenant love for his previous enemies. Fifth. True repentance is grounded on the finished work of Christ. That Jesus Christ is both the judge and the rescuer. Notice that although John promises judgment, that that's actually not what comes first. That Jesus actually bears the judgment of God before ultimately he will bring it in the final Days That the true enemies are the spiritual powers of evil and sin. And that the first thing in Jesus' crosshairs is the sin that he bears himself. And then finally, true repentance is God-given. Notice in verse 9 that John the Baptist says that, God, that, that he is willing and able... To raise up children from Abraham. In effect, John is pointing to, or at least alluding to, Ezekiel 26, I will give you a new heart, and remove the heart of sown, and give you a heart of flesh. Thomas Brooks, speaking of the supernatural, God-given nature of repentance, says true repentance is supernatural. No man is born with godly sorrow in his heart. As he is born with a tongue in his mouth. Godly sorrow is a plant of God's own planting. It is a seed of his own sowing. It is a flower of his own setting. We are ultimately completely dependent upon God to provide what he requires. As Augustine said, command what you will, but will what you command. Friends, our unshakable hope is that he will grant this request to all who come to Him in repentance, and we know this because He has brought, He has provided a way back into relationship with Him through the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Your Word. I pray that God, if anything has been said that is not from Your Word, that it would be struck from the minds. Of those listening, Lord, but if anything is true and from your word, that it would be applied by your Holy Spirit to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.